It's always a sweet sight to see the kids going out for the children's sermon and coming back. So, I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 5. We're continuing through John's gospel account, and we will be reading verses 1 through 17. Uh, the text is there for you in your bulletin. Um, but as you're turning there, I asked you, how, how do you feel about uncertainty? Uh, uncertainty scares some, if you're like me, if you have a logical mind, you, you like everything to be in order. <laughs> some of us feel quite at home with uncertainty. I need to tell you something. There are some things that I am uncertain about regarding this text. <laughs> that tends to scare me. Tends to scare me when things in my life are uncertain, but you know what I've also come to realize? Uncertainty is real life. <laughs> so this morning as we come to uh, those points of uncertainty in the text, I'm going to do my best to be honest with you about that. But with all this talk about uncertainty, I want to tell you that there are two points that we need to see in this text that are maybe even made more abundant through the uncertainty. First is this, the word of God is true, even when I don't understand it. The word of God is true even when you don't understand it. And that truth reminds us that we are a people under the authority of the word. We look to the authority of the word this morning. That's the first quick point. The second is this, even in the uncertainty and maybe possibly accentuated by the uncertainty, we see in this text that it points us to the sovereign grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So as we look to this passage, see him. And pray for us as we go there. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this word, a word that you have ordained for us this morning, would you give would you give me a trust in what you have for us this day? Would you give us each a trust in what you have for us this day? And let us together see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you are uh, fans of fairy tales? (laughs) You know how a fairy tale ends. Happily ever after. A nice, neat bow put on the end of a story. Maybe because the author actually believed that it would end up happily ever after. Maybe because the author was just ready to finish the story and didn't want to get into the real messiness of life. Regardless, we kind of like that story, don't we? We kind of like a nice, neat conclusion. We, We like the bow on top. The problem is, in this text, we find no such bow. This this text, I I think, leaves us scratching our head. It, It doesn't come with that conclusion. I'm not sure, honestly, if it does end up happily ever after, but it's good. It's good. I want us to see that. You look at your bulletin, the the outline, you've got a bit of a summary of what I think we see in this whole text, and then you've got three points, they'll be briefer points, mind you. Those are the implications of what we're going to derive from this text. But before we get to that, I want to walk us through, we're going to go through this text, and let me try and and unpack it uh, for us. Starts with... Jesus going up to Jerusalem. He's going up in elevation. He's going south in geography. But he's going back to Jerusalem. As we'll see in John, there's this back and forth. Because there are a series of of feasts. And this is an unnamed feast. It's really not important in the context of what's going on in the story. But Jesus goes back. And on his way back into Jerusalem, before he gets to the temple, he He stops off at this one particular pool, the pool at Bethesda. And by this pool, there are many who have been suffering. Paralytics, invalids, cripples. And they're there because they assume that this particular pool has mystical powers. And if they hit it just right, that water will bring healing. Jesus comes to the pool, but he comes for one man in particular. Why this man? Did you you wonder that as you came to the text? There's a a host of people suffering there, but Jesus came for this one. Why? I I don't know. I don't know. I I, I begin to guess, is it because this man had been suffering for 38 years? Years? Is it, is it that Jesus saw the length of time that he had been suffering? Maybe, but even that is, is conjecture. What I do know 
is that Jesus sought out this man. If you remember last week, we, we saw the second miracle in John's gospel account. This is the third. Last week was the second. And Jesus healed the, the official son, the royal official. But do you remember how that came about? The royal official heard that Jesus, this miracle worker, was in town and he came running for him. He had a need and he hoped that Jesus could meet that need. He sought Jesus out. But here, Jesus came looking for a man who was not seeking him. Let that land. Jesus came here for a man who was not seeking him. And Jesus walks up to him, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? <laughs> it's a curious question, don't you think? Jesus knew divinely that this invalid had been an invalid for 38 years. Why in the world would he ask him, do you want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. But Jesus asked the question. Because he's drawing something out. There are implications for our healing. <laughs> Jesus is drawing those implications out of the man. What might those implications be for the man? Well, on one hand, if he was healed, it would likely change his livelihood. You see, this man was, by trade, most likely a beggar. And if he's to be healed, he, his livelihood is going to change. So maybe Jesus is getting at the economic impact of, of this healing. Though likely, it's going deeper. Have you ever had a struggle that, though it was a struggle, it was familiar? Have you ever had a hurt that, that though it hurt, in the hurting at least you could feel? Sometimes in those those familiar hurts, those familiar struggles, we know they hurt, but we hold on to them because it's what we know. And sometimes we don't want to let go of the known because we're possibly more afraid of the unknown. Could Jesus be drawing that out of the man? Possibly. But again, most likely there is more. This is a physical healing. As I said, it's the third sign that we come to in John's gospel. And these signs are given to us that we might see the divine power of Jesus Christ. And that we might know him as the Christ, the Son of God. They are there to, to display his power through the physical healing. But the physical healing here and always is meant to point to a deeper issue point to his spiritual need he's pointing to his soul and he's drawing something out of the man's soul I believe he's drawing out a question from the man and it's a question that must be faced by all who would be delivered from their sin disease do we want to be healed sometime I had a friend who was engaged in a particular sin pattern. And I spoke with this friend about the sin pattern, was trying to shepherd him through it. And this friend with a, a, a raw honesty that 
quite frankly, is rare. But, you know, James, I, I know it's wrong. And I ask God to forgive me when I commit this sin pattern, but I'm not going to change. What was my friend saying there? My friend was saying, James, I, I love my sin more than I love Jesus. He was saying, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, but I'm not going to repent. True healing. True healing implies renewal. True healing implies transformation. True healing leads us into new life. It's the difference between simply asking for forgiveness and seeking repentance, endeavoring to follow Christ. Jesus is engaging in the physical realm with this man, but as always, in this man and in our lives, he's pointing to the heart. Some of us may be afraid of what comes on the other side of healing, physical or spiritual. Do you ever find yourself wanting to believe in Jesus, but wanting to keep him at a polite distance because you know that if he gets too close, he's going to start stirring some things up. He's going to start changing some things. And maybe you're afraid that if Jesus gets too close, if he gets beyond that arm's length, you might become one of those Jesus freaks. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'll confess that there was a season in my life where that's exactly how I thought. I believed about Jesus, but I wanted to keep him right there because I was afraid if he got too close, he, he might start working. And I didn't know what that might mean. I still wonder. But it's good. It's good because Jesus is good and gracious. And he invites us into the glorious unknown. Because in the glorious unknown, we find what's truly known. The love of God. We find hope. That's what Jesus is drawing out in this man. And it's what he's drawing out in us. Problem is, the man answered purely from the physical. And he missed Jesus entirely. Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed. But the man heard it and was thinking purely in terms of the mystical powers of the water. He was thinking in terms of superstition. So at this point, I need to acknowledge something that I don't know if you caught or not. If you were following along in your Bible, you may have seen that there was no verse 4. Let me explain what's going on there. Uh, this is what is called a textual variant. If you have the King James, you might have seen verse 4, but most of the newer translations actually rely on older Greek manuscripts. The older and, we believe, better Greek manuscripts. And, and so they look at this verse 4 that was in the later manuscripts and believe that it was an attempt on the part of certain scribes to explain what was going on later in this passage my ESV has it as a footnote. Possibly your Bible does as well. But here's what those scribes were trying to explain. 
When Jesus asked the man if he wanted to be healed, how did he answer? He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm trying to get in, this, someone steps down before me. Apparently there was the superstitious belief that there's an angel who would come and stir up the water. And when the water stirs, the first person in the water, and only the first person, gets healed. The man answers Jesus' question, I need to get in the water first and I can't. Jesus is asking if he's ready for transformation. Jesus is asking if he's ready for new life. The man says, I need somebody to put me in the water so the water can heal me. It's the equivalent of us equating our salvation to the things that we do, what I did, what I said, and not what the Holy Spirit has done in my life. The man responds in regards to the water, and Jesus says, no, it's the word that heals. And so he spoke the word. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. By the word of God, this man was healed. With that, we come to a transition in this passage and quite possibly a transition in the whole gospel account with this brief mention. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Bears some explaining because we're going to see that this opens up a line of conflict that will continue throughout. You see, this man picks up his bed, a little roll a little bed roll he rolls it up and starts to carry it and he encounters the Jews whom you ought to think about as the religious leaders and rather than celebrating the fact that this man who had been an invalid for 38 years has now been healed they have the audacity to point him out and say who do you think you are carrying a bed roll on a Sabbath they revealed their heart by accusing him of doing what's unlawful. But here's the problem. If you search the scriptures, read them throughout, you're not going to find in the scriptures that God prohibits a man from carrying a bedroll on the Sabbath. The religious leaders had, in effect, added to the word of God. They had added to the fourth commandment. And by this time, the religious leaders had, in fact, codified 39 specific examples of what it means to break the fourth commandment, one of which being that on the Sabbath you cannot carry anything. Sabbath breaker, who do you think you are? See, these religious leaders missed an important truth. And it's an important truth you need to hear because it's going to keep coming up in John. The Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift given to us by God meant to reorient our lives around God's blessed divine pattern of creation and redemption. It's meant to be a day that is set apart from the rest, a day that is intended for worship and for rest. And through that day of worship and rest is meant to point us to the rest that we have in Jesus Christ also meant to mark us as being different 
from the unbelieving peoples of the world. But the problem was the religious leaders focused entirely on being different. They focused entirely on contrasting from those other people. Listen, the Sabbath is part of God's eternal moral law, and we are called as His people to keep it holy. But for them, they lost focus on on the invitation that was the Sabbath and turned it into a tool of self-righteousness. That part is clear in this text. What comes next is less clear. When they called the man out, what did he do? He made me do it. It was the same sin of Adam in the garden when God asked him what he had done. And he pointed to Eve and to the serpent and eventually pointed back to God. Passing blame. What is the man doing? Why did he respond this way when, by saying, that man told me to pick up my bedroll? Was he explaining himself or was he trying to pass blame? I believe he was finger pointing. I think he was trying to get the focus off of himself and onto someone else. And that understanding sets up what we find in verse 14. Later, whether it was that day or another day, Jesus encounters the man in the temple. And there in the temple, Jesus comes up to him and says, See, you are well. And then he says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. More uncertainty. Let me give you a homework assignment. I know everybody comes to church and get a homework assignment. Well, here's your homework, homework assignment. Go home later and read John chapter 9. Because in John chapter 9, we come to another healing account. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And the contrast between the healing account in John 9 and John 5 is telling. There are differences between the two that draw out truth in each of the accounts. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples come up upon a man who has been born blind, and the disciples make an assumption. The assumption that the disciples make and verbalize in John 9 is there must have been some sin that led to this man's blindness. Was it his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, no. It was not sin that led to this blindness. This was so that God might be glorified. Jesus is telling the disciples in John 9, not all suffering is caused by sin, and not all sin leads to suffering. That is a truth that we need to hear, that the Word of God exposes in John chapter 9 in the contrasting passage. But the truth is also... The scripture affirms there are some cases of suffering that are caused by sin. You know this from personal experience. Think about it. Sexual promiscuity can lead to sexual disease and suffering. Not to mention the emotional suffering that comes about when we give our bodies over to a covenantal act without giving our heart and mind over to a covenantal commitment. It's a suffering that is brought about by our sin. Think about it in another term. If you lie on a job application, there may be a season where you are blissfully 
ignorant. You're in the clear until that lie comes out. And whatever happens as a result leads to much suffering. There are abundantly clear cases where our suffering or our suffering is a result of our sin, but beyond that, if we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is teaching about the Lord's Supper, and he says that some of you are approaching this table recklessly. You're not coming for the Lord's Supper. You're coming to get drunk, and that's why some of you have been sick, and that's why some have died. Scripture is saying there are times when our sin leads to suffering. We struggle with that truth. It's not always the case, but at times... It is, and in verse 14, as best I understand it, it seems like Jesus is drawing a connection between sin and suffering. Sin no more that, nothing worse will happen to you, so that nothing more, nothing worse may happen. Jesus is not laying out an expectation of perfectionism in this life. All will continue to struggle with the the reality of sin, the struggle with sin. He's not telling us to be perfect, but he most certainly is calling us to transformation. And in that, he seems to be saying that on some level, sin contributed to this suffering. And yet, through the miracle, Jesus is calling the man to receive a greater healing. But will the man heed the call? Verse 15, immediately after getting clarity on who it was that told him to pick up the bed and walk, he goes and tells the Jewish religious leaders it was Jesus who did it. Again, why? Is the man testifying or is he tattling? (laughs) Was he oblivious to the intentions of the Jews or did he have harmful intent? Either way, again, John 9 is a helpful contrast. And in John 5, this man is not glorifying Jesus the way we see there in John 9, which leads me to believe that what the man is doing is he's tattling on Jesus. And it's evident in the result. Religious leaders begin to persecute Jesus, and that persecution will lead in a very clear direction. How does the story end? Is the man merely healed of his physical illness or is he also redeemed? I don't know. Uncertainty. But I'm inclined to think that at least at this point he is not redeemed or at least not yet. So, how does that feel as a conclusion? How does it feel? To end the story that way. To leave us hanging. (laughs) Not great if we want everything wrapped up in a nice, neat bow. Not great if we want to see in that moment a man redeemed, transformed by saving grace. Not great if we want the whole thing to be clean. So how does that feel? A lot like real life. There are uncertainties that I have about this text. And those uncertainties 
I just confess to you, sometimes scare me. But what I want you to see is that in spite of the uncertainties and maybe because of the uncertainties, there are some definite realities. There are some things that are certain in this text. And we need to hold on to them with everything we have. They are the implications. So what do we do with this story that we find at least on some level unresolved? Well, the first implication for us is this. Jesus graciously enters in to the real lives of real sinners. Something in us wants to root for the good guy, right? Something in us wants to say that good things happen to good people. And the corollary, I think, is also true. If someone doesn't respond to Jesus, or maybe more specifically, if someone doesn't respond to me, then I'm going to associate them in the bad guy category, right? Or is it just me? That's how we think. But the truth that we find in this passage is that Jesus came for sinners, messy sinners, messy sinners like me and like you. He pursues them. He pursues us and he pursues those others. Those others that we're not sure if we want to pursue them because we don't know how it will all work out. And that truth tells us that Jesus' salvation is all of grace. This man and this storyline, they stretch our understanding of grace. And they point us to the God who is sovereign and who is sovereign and gracious in his pursuit of sinners like us. But it's not just that we want to qualify the kind of people that we will pursue or quite frankly the quality of people who we are. Maybe it's also that we want to qualify what that pursuit will look like. I'd like for it to be relatively quick painless. In other words, not uncomfortable. If I can squeeze it in between 3 and 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, that would be nice. I'd like for it to fit in my schedule. According to my script. In other words, I'd like to stick a nice neat bow on the top. My counselor once called me out on this. We were talking about some particular strand of teaching about how uh, people are transformed. And it was one of those that fit into my formulaic thinking. In other words, if I put the inputs in, the output will come about as I ordained it. And my counselor looked at me and said, You know, James, oftentimes in real life, the gospel is just messy. And what he didn't say, what he didn't have to say, was, You know, James, oftentimes you are messy. One of the truths that we find in this scripture is one of the things that challenges us. What are we going to do with a Jesus who is comfortable letting the messiness linger? What are we going to do with a Jesus who allows us to continue in the struggle? What are we going to do with a Jesus who doesn't work according to our time frame? This is what we're going to do. We're going to come to understand that we cannot control him. And therefore, we must worship him. That's one takeaway. 
Jesus graciously enters into the real lives of real sinners. But there is another truth that we need to see. An implication we need to draw out from this uncertain text, and that is this. It is certain that Jesus calls us to turn, or there will be consequences. Eternal ones. Yes, Jesus graciously enters in. But make no mistake about it. This call that he places on the man's life and the call that he places on our lives, it is gracious, but it is strong. He tells the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you understand what Jesus is telling the man? He's pointing him to the day of judgment. And he's telling him that in that day, there will be a fate that awaits that will be worse than paralysis for the unrepentant sinner. In that day, the unrepentant sinner will stand before the judgment seat of God and the entirety of his sinful existence will be laid bare for God and all to see. Friends, for the one who has rejected Christ here in this life, on that day, there will be no more hope of grace and mercy. There will only be left the final everlasting reality that the door has been shut and he will be left with the consequences of his sin. Friends, this call is strong. But it's also gracious. Because here, the Jesus, yes, is saying, turn and sin no more. But that... Life of transformation is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, turn to me. Turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ. We sing it in the the great hymn, Come Ye Sinners. On that day of judgment, the repentant sinner will be able to plead the merit of his blood. For none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Jesus graciously enters in. Jesus loves us where we are. But he doesn't leave us there. Because the grace that saves is the grace that transforms. So he calls messy sinners to turn away from sin and turn towards him. There's a third and final implication I want to draw out. Jesus did all of this knowing that it was the path that would lead him to the cross. Look, part of the struggle that I have with this text, I've had this week as I've wrestled with it, was that I don't know what happened. Maybe that's the struggle that you have, that you don't know what happened. Unlike Nicodemus that we saw in John 3, we don't see this man show up again later in John. We saw Nicodemus, who he'll pop back up and we'll, We'll be able to put some conclusion to the story. Unlike the the Samaritan woman at the well and the royal official within the context of their stories, we don't see the clear evidence of transformation in this man's life. But like real life, we just don't know. Yet Jesus does. He knew then, he knows now, and he also knows how the story is going to play out for him, because he knew that healing this man on the Sabbath would raise the ire of the religious leaders. 
He knew that this man would tell the religious leaders what had, he had done. He knew that that would bring about persecution. And he knew that that persecution would ultimately lead to his death on the cross. He knew it all. Because it was his story. Praise be to God, it's our story. Our story of redemption written for us. The question for us is ultimately this. Will we hold on to what we know and can control? Or will we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, giving Him reign over our life to bring whatever glorious transformation He is desiring for us? Will we hold on or will we turn? Here's the second question. Are we willing to pursue others when they don't want it or when we don't know how it will work out? Recently, I was talking to a friend who was engaged in that kind of pursuit, pursuing a neighbor, a neighbor who would come up to him and ask him thoughtful questions about Jesus. And at times, those thoughtful questions seemed to crack open the door to his heart, but at other times that door seemed totally shut off. My friend loved his neighbor and wanted him to know Jesus, but he struggled with the messiness of it all. He struggled with the messiness of the pursuit, and it was a messiness evident by the lack of perceptible progress in the storyline. How about us? Are we engaged in that pursuit? And what do we do in the pursuit when we can't see the progress? Do we get frustrated with the messiness of it all? And where is that frustration directed? Is it at me and my inability to articulate the gospel, thinking that my ability might convert this sinner? Is it a frustration directed at my neighbor for not getting it? Is it a frustration that is directed at God? Here's the problem with frustration. Frustration leads to hand-wringing. Frustration leads to throwing it all away and quitting. So what if instead of frustration we go to lamenting and longing? You see, lamenting and longing are frustration rightly directed, not at God, but with God by our side directed at the presence of sin and Satan. Lamenting and longing fuel persistent pursuit and prayer. Lamenting and longing understands that it's not my job to reconcile into a nice, neat bow either my own pursuit of Christ or the, my pursuit of the neighbor. Because Jesus knows the storyline. He wrote it and he entered into it. All of the messiness of it. And he did so for us and for our redemption. So let us turn. Let us turn with hearts of gratitude and praise. <laughs> Let us not merely engage in the mess. Let us stay in it. Trusting in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Father, this is your story, and though we can't see it all, we trust there will be a day when we will be able to stand in your presence, trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. And there, perhaps, we might know, but perhaps we won't care anymore because you will be our ultimate gift.
and our hearts would be turned to you with, with a greater clarity. Would you sustain us now until that day with hope in Christ through the message? Do this, we ask, in his name. Amen.